Mark Caro, and welcome to episode 38 of Caro Pop. Spoon is a band that's instantly identifiable no matter how much it experiments and grows. The only two members in the band since its 1996 debut, Telefono, or for that matter, since the classic streak of albums from Girls Can Tell through Ga 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 Ga, are singer-songwriter guitarist Britt Daniel and drummer-producer Jim Eno. Daniel's voice, with that powerful Lennon-esque rasp, is unmistakable, as are his tight melodic songs and jagged guitar playing. She had half a mind, well she might not take this all quite so seriously. So put the notebook down and take off your dress, I've never seen it before. But what gives Spoon its snap and groove is Eno's drumming. Like the late Al Jackson of Booker T and the MGs, he doesn't appear to be doing anything fancy, yet the songs make you want to move. What's more, Spoon's songs are constantly dropping beats and shifting to odd time signatures, yet never sound proggy with Eno keeping everything together. When Spoon played at the Riviera Theater in Chicago in April, I couldn't take my eyes off him. He was the propeller on a powerful engine. Jimmy Eno still lives and works in Austin, Texas, where Britt Daniel and he founded Spoon almost 30 years ago. Spoon has done much of its recording at Eno's studio, Public Hi-Fi, including big chunks of its latest album, Lucifer on the Sofa. Now Daniel, who moved around a bit, is living in Austin again, so he and Eno are able to work as closely together as ever. Eno was at Public Hi-Fi in between legs of Spoon's current tour when we spoke. He walks us through his background as an electrical engineer and the beginning of his partnership with Daniel in the band The Alien Beats. Did Eno always have that sense of groove? What drummers did he admire? Then come Spoon's first two albums, the band getting dropped by Elektra, and the sense of reinvention that drives the 2001 album Girls Can Tell. What were the strict rules that Spoon decided to abandon? Cross the was finally clicking here and on Kill the Moonlight, Gimme Fiction, and Ga 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 Ga. When The Way We Get By was featured on the TV show The OC, did that feel like a breakthrough? How did I Turn My Camera On come together? And was Daniel always singing it in that Prince-like falsetto? How does Spoon's music wind up in the movie Stranger Than Fiction? Why did the drums on the underdog sound different from the rest of Ga 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 Ga? And how did things change when that song got lots of airplay? And when Spoon's seventh album, Transference, came out in 2010, why was the band no longer having much fun? Four years would pass before the release of the next Spoon album, and in that time, Daniel released an album and toured with a new band, Divine Fits. Eno hunkered down in Austin, producing such acts as Heartless Bastards and Alejandro Escovedo. Were there any hard feelings when Daniel decided to play with others? Was this a constructive time all around? Daniel wound up bringing Whirligig Divine Fitz keyboardist guitarist Alex Fischel into Spoon, and the rejuvenated now five-piece band released the acclaimed They Want My Soul in 2014. Dave Fridman added more modern production with electronic textures driving the soulful inside out, yet the band still sounded like Spoon, from the guitar crunch of Rent I Pay through the ear-tickling hooks of Do You. Thoughts from 2017 was Spoon's most electronic album yet, with the title track and Can I Sit Next to You sounding at home on a dance floor. Lucifer on the Sofa, released earlier this year, marks Spoon's return to guitar rock and then some. Yet even though the sound is more straight ahead this time, the band is still experimenting, and Eno describes an awfully cool technique they used to fatten up the sound on the hard-hitting kickoff track, Held. 
The pandemic broke up work on this scorching album, recorded mostly in Austin, and the band didn't want it released until they could tour. That's what they're doing now. Does touring feel back to normal, or with COVID still lingering, is there an asterisk? How has Eno's partnership with Daniel changed over the years? Or has it? How does Daniel bring songs to the band? Does he record demos, or perform them for everyone sitting around in a circle? How does Eno work out his drum and percussion parts? Does the band prepare new material while out on the road? What's next for Spoon? Eno is every bit as smart, thoughtful, and perceptive as you'd expect him to be. Please enjoy this Carol Pop conversation with Jim Eno. Now while she went to Chicago that night, she faced the wall. And she woke up outside with all these knees in her mouth and felt the pole. And now, night, the rain came on down. But then she never been to Chicago. Are you at uh, Public Hi-Fi right now? I am, yeah. Yeah, which is pretty much, I mean, it's like a 10-foot commute from my house. So there's my house is like right there. Oh, cool. So this, yeah. so Public Hi-Fi started as a garage studio, and now it's like you built your own place at some yeah, point. Yeah, so it was a, um, a two-car garage when I bought this house in 1998. Um, and I used that as a studio up until like the mid-2000s. Um, and then I knocked that down and built like this as a proper recording studio. So it's like about eight, uh, 1800 square feet. Uh, and it's like on the same property as my house. And so you built the whole building from scratch as a recording studio. Exactly. Yeah. So it has like floating floors and, you know, double wall construction and all that stuff for nice. Yeah. And you have a background as an engineer and a tech guy. So yeah. Do you sort of just know this stuff already coming into it or no, I mean, my background is in like digital uh, chip design, nothing practical can really come from it, at least on the, on the engineer. I mean, on the um, audio engineering side or fixing gear and stuff like that. Right. Um, that's more analog design. And that's like something I never really got into. So, um, but it does help me a little bit with like, um, like what's called signal flow, you know, so microphone into mic preamp into compressor out and back in, you know, so it, it helps me with that. But as far as fixing gear or like acoustics, all that stuff, I sort of had to learn on my own. And you're from Rhode Island originally? But... Yeah. Yeah. I grew up in Warwick, uh, Rhode Island, which is, you know, it's about 15 minutes from Providence, maybe 20 minutes from Providence. And it's where, the quote Providence airport is it's just like a suburb of Providence. When did you first start with music? Were you drums first? Were you engineering first? Or were you like, you know, playing guitar like everyone else? Or what? Oh, no, no, no. Like I wanted to play drums since I was really, really young, but my parents never bought me a drum set. So I got a pair of sticks and I would play on the, on the couch of, of my living room and listen to headphones and listen to the radio and stuff. Um, and then um, I played, well, at the start of middle school, I went into middle school and I'm like, hey, I want to play the drums. My music teacher was like, no, you have to wait till eighth grade. Seventh graders don't play the drums. <laughs> First day of eighth grade, I went in and I'm like, hey, you know, I want to play the drums. He's like, well, you're my first chair saxophone player. Uh, so I'm not letting you switch to drums. And plus only idiots play the drums. So uh, then I, I quit wow. know, music. So 
I got to track that guy down sometime. Yeah, that's not, that, that's not, it's not even a good drummer joke. It's just mean. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> At least if you put yeah. it in the context of a drummer joke, you could have had like a joke. I know. On it. I know. Like, well, this idiot makes his living out of playing drums. So yeah, exa- absolutely. What, so what was it about drums that made you want to do it from such an early age? I don't know. You know, I feel like, um, like all of us, we are sort of, we sort of gravitate towards things, you know, like I, like I was watching, uh, a Taylor Hawkins video the other day and he went over to a friend's house, you know, and I guess the friend was always trying to get him to play guitar bass or something like that. And then he sat down at the drums and he really loved it. And the guy whose drum set it was, he's like, you know, you're a drummer. He's like, I can tell that you're a drummer, you know? And I feel like I felt the same way about drumming. You know, there was just something about it that, uh, I was really, you know, it was fun to do. Um, and I always gravitated towards like listening to the drums when I was listening to music. Were there drummers who you thought, Oh my God, I want to, I want to be this person. Uh, let's see. When I was growing up, I listened to like a lot of like classic rock and stuff like that. So I don't know, like Van Halen, you know, uh, the who, you know, Keith Moon, which is funny because I like drummers like Bonham and Keith Moon, but like, I can't play like that. You know, it's, it's like, I don't know. I'm more of like a Ringo or Charlie Watts style drummer. You know, I I like, I I love those guys too, but at least when I was growing up and learning, like, you know, just playing on my own, um, you know, I think you always gravitate towards, you know, the, the, the drummers that sort of, you know, uh, technically blow you away. I don't know. You're sort of gravitated towards that. Like, how do you do that? You know? So I feel like you were getting close to Bonham on fitted shirt like that. Yeah, that definitely. Definitely. Yep. That was what I was trying to do on that one. So, um, you know, and I feel like now I play a lot more like Bonham than I, than, you know, um, when I first started, you know, um, trying to like, uh, just really get the heavy kick and the low end. And, you know, I don't do the really fast kick drum stuff, but, you know, I feel like I can, I can channel that a little bit better. I feel like you have a really great sense of groove. And I'm wondering if that's something that you always had. Is that something innate? Did you listen to groovy music? Um, I, I don't know. I feel like that's something I was probably born with. You know, I feel like I've, I've played in a couple bands where one of my first bands that the guy was like, um, man, I don't know when you, when you play, I just feel like everyone wants to dance, you know? And I'm like, Oh, that's pretty cool. You know? And I don't know what it is about it, but it may be the way I sort of have some sort of swing or something. I'm not, I'm not really sure. Right. Well, yeah, well, it's like you, you mentioned Charlie Watts and he's another one. You're, you're like, I don't know quite how he's doing what he's doing, but it's making me feel something and want to move. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Now, when you guys played, uh, when Spoon played at the Riviera in Chicago in April, I was, I was kind of watching, I mean, I've seen you, you a lot of times. I, this first time I saw you was in South by Southwest, like a couple of years before Telefono came out, I think. Oh, wow. Um, it was a while ago. So, and then I remember seeing you at Lounge Jacks 
when Telephonic oh, yeah. came out. Um, How many and, people were uh, at Lounge X when, when you were there? Uh, we were, a, we were a somewhat of a percentage of them. Um, it wasn't, <laughs> we weren't like 1% of them. We were maybe like 10% of them. I don't yeah, know. So was, there were pro- yeah. So there were about probably 30 people in the audience or something. It was like, it was a week. I think it was a weeknight and um, typical. Yeah. But it was, I remember thinking it was cool. And I'm like, Oh, this is that band I discovered because I met someone down there who was uh, friends with Brit. I think it oh, just cool. a date Brit. And, uh, so it was like, yeah, it was like that, that year was like you guys and fastball were sort of the big oh, yeah. Austin bands about to happen. And neither one of you, I think had been signed at that point. Um, right. right. And uh, so it was, it was interesting and, and it was interesting to watch both of you, uh, both bands, but I was definitely, you know, intrigued by spoon at the time. So I go back, but I was saying that when I saw you at the Riv in April, I was watching you and also just kind of feeling like how you're holding down that music. And and actually the, the comp I came, not that you, you always need to compare musicians to other musicians, but I was thinking about Al Jackson in Booker T and the MGs. Oh yeah. How, cause I, cause I was like, I was like, I'm not quite sure how he's doing what he's doing, but the stuff always has such this, this groove to it. And, and Al Jackson too, I'll listen to those Booker T and the MGs or, you know, when they're backing all those other stacks acts like Otis Redding or whoever else. And I'm like, I don't know why he's so funky, but there's just something there. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Well, thanks. I mean, yeah, that's a pretty sick comparison. So I I appreciate it. Can't play can't play like him but yeah i see where you're, where you're going with it you know do you and brit with when he comes to you with a song does it does it have that kind of rhythm in place or is that the thing that you're providing because he's uh, a pretty I mean, rhythmic player yeah totally he's very rhythmic um it's it's uh i mean it goes a lot of different ways you know um he may bring a song uh in that has a full demo you know, like completely done where I'm just sort of filling out the track or sometimes I don't even play like, can I sit next to you that I don't even think I played on that may have done some hi-hat work on it. Um, otherwise it would be something where maybe he would bring in a riff and we all played as a band or something, or like, I think inside out was one where he and I just played it and came up with the groove sort of together. And he's like, thinking something sort of hip hoppy, you know? So I think it goes a a lot of different ways. You know, he definitely has a, a strong opinion on what the rhythm should be like, you know? Um, And we will definitely discuss that. And as the songwriter, I I know that he has something in his head that like I have to deliver, you know what I mean? So like, like going back to a song, like utilitarian, uh, that, 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 that sort of, I don't even know what to call it. That kind of funky echoey block thing was going on. I'm going to do a terrible job. Is that something you would have added? Or is that something he was like, Hey, let's add this to the song. Uh, That's probably, he added that. I think that was like a lot of those early songs it was really like me and him in a practice room, like, and he would be like, da, na, na, da, 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 na, na, and I would just be, right. bah, 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 you know, so I would like sort of play along with him. And then we're like, okay, what should we do for the choruses, you know? And then that song also is like dropping beats all over the place. So it's right. like, it, so I'll ha- I, I accent the one when we drop the beat, you know, that kind of thing. Right. So is he dropping the beats in the version that he's bringing to you or are oh, you yeah. kind of working that out together? No, that's, that's the crazy thing is, is like you listen to a lot of the early, early stuff and um, all the rhythmic changes that were created were mainly to fit around his vocal cadence, you know? 
So like you listen to utilitarian or, or like that song, not turning off, you know, um, where that's like in, I think it's in five and then it switches to like maybe a 12, eight thing and then to four. So it's like going between all these different things, but that, that song was written and came to me like that, which really for me is an awesome situation to be in because as a drummer, you try to uh, sort of, at least for me, I try to take the emphasis away from those time signature changes and make it as smooth as possible. So that's sort of my approach to those types of songs, you know? Can't sleep at all. They can't sleep at all. And I don't want to miss such an American scene. And I said to myself, I'm not turning off. I said to myself, I'm not turning off. Well, I said to started drumming with him in a band called the alien beats yeah yeah and then spoon came after that what did you guys like about being with each other right from the start well i mean in the alien beats it was sort of like a live rockabilly country band and we were sort of all doing it for fun um and i think brit brit only wrote a couple of songs in that band um the main songwriter was brad shenfeld who ended up leaving austin to go to law school and he's actually our lawyer now um, and, uh, so Brit then after that band, after Brad went to law school, Brit was like, Hey, why don't you come on over and I'm writing some songs. And I had no idea what to expect because I never listened to any of Brit's previous music or anything. And, and, uh, so I was just sort of blown away by what he was writing, you know, for, for a lot of different reasons. And it also felt like something you could add something to. Oh, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. That I could add to. And also that like, it was going to be like fun and challenging for me. You know, when I was at Compaq, I did pretty much two years of just playing jazz. So I felt like since I started so late, I started playing drums. Uh, I got my first drum set when I was like 21, when I was in college. So I, I felt like in order to progress as a drummer, since I started so late, I should, I should play jazz, you know? And that really got me into odd time signatures and how to do that. It, I never had the chops, but I could like count. I could lead like a big band and stuff like that, you know? So I was, I was good at that, but uh, the idea of playing in a rock band that had like odd time signatures, but was not rush kind of stuff. It was pretty right. cool, you know? Yeah. It's like spoon sort of does fancy stuff that doesn't sound fancy. Like exactly. you guys make it yeah. sound like this really tight, you know, pop songs. And then you're just like, yeah, that, that time signature just shifted like three times in that song and you're, <laughs> exactly. and you're dropping beats all the place and, right. and all of that. But it doesn't sound like, uh, you know, some yes song or something exactly. where it's kind of drawing attention to itself at all. Exactly. Yeah. So trying to be understated there and trying to sort of glue the different parts together uh, was sort of something that was really, has always been really fun for me. What stood out about Brit? Was it the, was it the writing? Was it the playing or was it the singing or again, the combination of everything? Probably the combination of everything. If I was going to rate them, I would probably say, you know, the first thing was probably the songs and then probably uh, the vocals 
and then the uh, probably his playing. But his playing is great, too, because, I mean, uh, in the Alien Beats, he played bass. So I didn't even really know he played guitar either. So, um, and he's a great bass player too. He's really fun to play bass with. I think he plays at least on one track on uh, Lucifer on the Sofa. And I know he plays on, with uh, with uh, our friend in Evanston, uh, Jason Arduzzi and Split Single. He's the bassist on, I think that first album of theirs yeah, as well. Exactly, exactly right, yeah. So what was the first song that he brought you where you thought, holy shit, that's a great song? Uh, let's see. All the Telefono stuff. I mean, I feel like the one that blew me away the most was was Not Turning Off. Yeah, I feel like that was the one only because it was like the vocal melody just fits so well with uh, the different time cha- time signature changes that... I was just like, you know, it just didn't sound forced. It was, it was pretty amazing. So Telefono's credited in pr- production to John Crossland mm-hmm. and then series of sneaks is credited to him and spoon, which I assume means you and Brit. Yeah. Um, at what point did you start getting more involved in the recording side of spoon? Um, let's see. I mean, back when, so in 98, we got dropped by Electra and that's when I was starting to buy studio gear and uh, John Vanderslice from Tiny Telephone. Do you know him? Do you know John Vanderslice? No. Uh, he and I became friends uh, long distance. He His studio was like vintage gear and stuff like that. So I ended up modeling my studio a lot after his. So, um, but as far as like getting more involved, I feel like, uh, um, you know, around the... Uh, um, right after the series of sneaks, I feel like I started getting more involved with the recording because there was this soft effects EP that we would sort of do, we did together and we had a guy named Craig Ross come in and help us. And then, um, you know, we did the Loveways EP. uh, And then for Girls Can Tell, we started a lot of that ourselves and then brought Mike McCarthy in. And then pretty much I was just like, always around uh when we were doing stuff in my studio so i I was sort of assisting mike a lot and then when mike wasn't around i was working with brit on stuff and were you engineering all those sessions too well mike would do a lot of the engineering um because he was just you know he had a lot more experienced than me. And he's, he's a great engineer. And when you were getting the studio gear, were you looking at it in terms of, I want to have this other gig going on where I'm recording and producing bands or was it sort of spoon centric? Like, Hey, you know, it would be cool to be able to do the next spoon stuff. Well, the first idea was to make us as much uh, as self-sufficient as possible. So to help spoon, like, you know, make records uh, as cheap as possible because we didn't have a label you know, we had just been dropped. And so that was, that was the goal. And then even when we got a label, it just ended up being like, we could, we could really work at my place and, and, um, you know, not spend a thousand dollars a day at a studio, you know? So that was the first thing. But then as Spoon became more, uh, we started getting more and more fans. I was thinking, well, I gotta, you know, is there a way for me to quit my day job and just do music? And for that, I felt like I needed another avenue, like when Britt was writing. So that's when I was like, man, I love being in the studio. I'm going to start producing 
uh, and engineering other records. What was the, the equipment you were getting? Did you say, I'm just going to go analog or were you doing a combination of analog and digital? I was doing a combination of analog and digital. It was mostly analog. So like a Neve console, a lot of vintage microphones, stuff like that. Um, and then Mike McCarthy would be like, oh, you need something like this. And I would go out and research it and try to find something, you know, trying to make Mike happy. You know, is it, it made the sessions go a lot, a lot better. Yeah. Cause I think of your stuff as being analog, um, mm-hmm. for a while, like I, like those, those albums through like Gaga, 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 I think we're all pre- partly at least recorded with at your studio. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It was just, it also, it was like the early two thousands and the late nineties and, and the digital technology was very poor at that time. So we were always recording on analog tape. Um, but one thing I did do, and I, this is pretty nerdy, but I did have an early pro tool system and I was able to sync, uh, the tape machine with pro tools so that we could actually, if we ran out of tracks, I could actually throw things into pro tools to give us more tracks. And then right. you, hit, you hit play on the tape machine and then you have Pro Tools syncing along with that. So what we would do is we would co- record everything on tape and then we were, we were running out of tracks, throw over like a tambourine or throw over a background vocal or something that didn't require like super high fidelity. And then it would free up a track on the analog machine. And would you end up editing it digitally or? Yeah, we would do tape? some editing that way too. Yeah. I remember uh, when Gaga 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 came out, you guys did a XRT uh, thing at uh, Shuba's and I was talking to Brit, which I, and I really love that album. And I, and I said something about the underdog and I said, you know, the, the underdog really sounds like the drum sound of it. Like it sounds different from everything else on the record. And he's like, that's cause it's digital and everything else is analog. <laughs> and, uh, you know, basically we went to LA and John Bryan wanted to record that digitally. So he did, but it doesn't right. have the same depth of sound. So, and that was kind of this little light bulb with me on the whole sort of digital analog divide, at least as of 2007. Yeah. And also I think that was one of the crap drum sets I've ever played. You know, John Bryan had hundreds of snare drums, but we picked, you know, we picked like the jankiest kind of drum kit for that song to just to make it sound really odd. So that snare drum, I remember the snare drum was falling apart. So the wires were coming out and John asked his assistant to go and hold like the snare wires up against the snare as I was doing the take. And I'm like, Hey man, this is going to be like really loud. Do you want earplugs or anything? And he's like, no, I'm good. I have a hoodie. And he just put his hoodie (laughs) hoodie over his head. And then I did the takes with him, like standing right there, uh, sitting right there underneath the snare drum. It's like, yeah. Did you guys think, Oh, this is the hit. Uh, I don't know if we, I mean, I thought it was, yeah. I mean, I thought it was a great song, um, but I mean, I'm pretty sure that that one almost didn't make it on the record um, because it just sort of didn't fit, you know? It just does have a different sound to it. Exactly. Like the horns and stuff like that, you know? You've been dropped by Electra. 
uh, and you're going to do Girls Can Tell, which is going to sort of launch you into the the string of classic albums that we know and love today was what was your mood at that point? Were you guys like bummed out? Like, uh, what's just not happening? Or were you like, okay, we're in control. We're going to, we're going to start doing what we want to do and kick some ass. Um, I mean, I think we were both sort of, uh, wondering what was going to happen. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, the nineties were pretty rough. Um, you know, everything we did wasn't, you know, nothing was really working. So, uh, and for me, I knew Brit was still had some songs and I wanted to just keep working and using the studio and stuff like that. So I was trying to like, you know, let's, let's keep going, you know, let's, let's work on this stuff and everything. So trying to keep the ball, the ball rolling, even when girls can tell was done, you know, we didn't, it took a while for us to um, find someone to put it out. So, um, I would say it wasn't, wasn't a great time, you know? Um, we definitely weren't like sort of like thinking like, Oh, we're going to take over the world, you know, that kind of thing. We were just like, Hey, let's, let's just put, put some songs together and see if, see if, um, see what it sounds like, you know, do you feel like you'd made a great artistic leap with that album? Well, I feel like one thing that we, we did do is we used to have like rules when it came to tracks, you know, like we would shy away from piano. We would shy away from, you know, um, just nicer sort of things like reverb and stuff like that. And, um, and, but then when we started looking at the records we, we listened to, you know, like you listen to a Marvin Gaye record and those records are sick. There's piano and strings and horns and stuff. And sure. You know, so it, it's like, what do we, we should just write and try to be creative in the studio and see what happens. You know, what's, what was the reason for all those rules? Was it just like, we have to be a band like wire or something like that? Or like, I why? Think that's, you yeah. That I on? think we were just like, uh, like, we thought it was cooler to, yeah, to be like wire or gang of four or something, you know? Um, I don't know. I think I saw a quote from Brit at some point where he's like, well, wire didn't have piano. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So when you record something like uh, everything hits at once, were you like, Oh, this is really good though. I think, yeah, I think so. You know, but um, I mean, I feel like we also thought um our previous records were good too, you know? Um, so sure. you just never, you just never know you, when you, when you're recording, you're like, so like, we think it's great, you know, because <laughs> hopefully other people will, will like it, you know, but if not, we're just going to keep putting out records, you know, at least that's what I try to tell like younger bands and stuff, you know, that you have to look at it like you're going to do 10 records, you know, and this is just an evolution and it's just, a timestamp of where you are in your, in your career, you know? Right. And then kill the moonlight. It just sort of feels like you guys are just, all right, this, this is what we do. And it's this very taut sort of spare, very groovy record. Again, I keep using the word groove, but you know, like, like, it's like, like, it. like, it's there. Yeah. There's just, you just kind of want to move to that, that whole record and the short songs are, you know, mostly short and tight. Um, and then, you know, you got your little bouncy piano, almost kinksy thing with the way yeah. to get by. Yeah. Did you, did you have a sort of more confidence going into that one? Because girls can tell finally had come out and been well received and. Yeah. Yeah. I feel like, uh, you know, like 
we, we never had a hit like fastball or anything, you know, um, all our songs, maybe until, I don't know, maybe the underdog or so. I mean, we're sort of like slow burners, you know? So our success has always been very, very gradual where, it, you know, you see it as you go to different cities, more people are coming to our shows, you know, we're getting more opportunities and stuff like that. Um, so I feel like, yeah, with, with kill the moonlight and then give me fiction, I feel like it does show this sort of, um, confidence bravado, maybe that, you know, we're like, okay, we know what we're, what we're doing, you know, let's use this studio as an instrument thing, sort of like, um, you know, how the Beatles did it and let's try to be as creative as we can, you know, was the way we get by, was that on like the OC or something like, yeah. some... yep. I was on the OC. Yeah. You know, again, I wasn't hearing it on the radio that much that I, I was hearing sort of beyond that. Like, I think turn my camera on. I think I was hearing on the radio by then. Yeah. Yeah. That could be, that could be, um, but again, I mean, we, it's sort of like we always did well with college radio from Girls Can Tell on. And then maybe around the underdog, again, this is this could be totally wrong, but my gut feel is that then around like the underdog and Cherry Bomb, we started hitting like the, you know, the AAA kind of kind of thing, you know, where we started getting traction there. So um, and we've never really had any success in the, the modern rock era. Yeah. They were playing don't you ever here also. I remember hearing that one Yep, mm -hmm. a bunch. So yeah. I also, to, to go back to give me fiction, I remember that the movie stranger than fiction uh, opened the Chicago film festival that year. Oh, wow. And, and I was like, like the, the music and it was basically give me fiction instrumental tracks, as I recall how that happened. So, uh, Brian Reitzel, who is the music director for that, uh, reached out to Brit in order to, uh, see if he wanted to help with the soundtrack for that. Um, and I'm trying to think of, Oh, I think he did lost in translation before that. I think Brian did, but he was, he was onto this thing where he would like use a, use a band that he liked. And then he would do the movie based around, not based around, but use that band's music to, uh, as sort of the, the soundtrack of the movie. So to create like a sort of a more consistent kind of feel, you know, was the album already done at that point? And he's just like, okay, I'm going to take like the, you know, the instrumental part of my mathematical mind and run it over the scene. Exactly. Right. Yeah. And, and so we had all the stems for that had instrumentals. And so there was some remixing and, and I'm pretty sure like mathematical mind was like restructured to fit the scene, you know? Right. So, so at this point when Brit's bringing you, bringing in songs, uh, is it the same as he was doing early on or has this process changed? Is it, does he tend to make a demo? Does he tend to sit down with the band and start playing it? And then you guys join in. Uh, I feel like it's every record has been very similar that every record has had a mix of those things you know, like completed demo versus like, Hey, let's just work on this. You know, I would say up until maybe, you know, loose from the sofa, that was a lot of like, more like working as a band to like come up with stuff before we record. That was the mentality around this record. Right. Yeah. And I want to get into that because you have, you had this live band approach and then pandemic sort of interrupts everything. Exactly. Right. Um, yeah. So go back to give me fiction. Sure. Um, 
like turn my camera on. Do you remember how that one came in? Like, yeah. Yeah. So that came in where um, Britt had a demo and I remember we were on tour and he said, Hey, check out this tune. Um, and it was really, really sparse. Uh, but I was listening to uh, a lot of like Prince at the time. And I feel like, right. I feel like we were all listening to that in the van. I feel like when you tour in a van, a lot of times you're just, you know, playing music together, which is pretty awesome. Um, and so I, ha I had this idea for the beat to make it more dancey instead of rock. I don't know. I, I remember Britt saying he hadn't, he wasn't hearing it that way, but then when we got together to play it, he really was into it. And so we just sort of took it, took it in that direction. Did the sort falsetto like the, follow the Prince rhythmic thing? No, no. The falsetto was there. I think I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure it was in there. That's interesting. Yeah. No, the first time I heard that song, I was like, Oh, it's their Prince song. <laughs> yeah. Which is a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then yeah, beast but, and dragon adored was almost the title cut until you guys retitled it but that one I've, that one i've put on mix mix cds for people yeah the interesting thing about that one was brit came up with the idea that was the last song he wrote and um uh it references all or most of the song on that songs on that record and he thought it would be a really cool idea to have that first on the sequence and reference all the other tracks within the lyrics right so um, I thought that was pretty cool. That was the last song that I heard. You guys are touring at this point. The albums are getting acclaim. What did? What are you sort of feeling? Like, what's the mood of the band uh, through that? And ga 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 ga. Um, let's see. Um, I mean, gradually better. You know, I mean, we we were just like playing bigger clubs. You know, um, uh, I think. Um, I think we did SNL. Um, that was probably one of top, either the top one or one of the top highlights of being in the band. I feel like that was a amazing experience. So, uh, was that nerve wracking? Uh, it was original. Initially I was, uh, reading the SNL oral history you know, before we went in. And I think that was a really dumb idea because it, <laughs> it just stressed me out. And I was like, man, this is such an iconic show. You know, it's, it's just amazing that I'm going to be able to play it, you know, or I think I'm going to be able to play it. I don't usually, you know, I usually wait till I'm actually there and then be like, Oh wow, I actually did play, you know, just in case something happens. So, um, but uh, it wasn't too nerve wracking because you're there on a Thursday, you run the song, you do sound check, you do blocking check, you get Friday off, then you do like so many rehearsals on Saturday, then you do a performance in front of a live audience that isn't the real show, and then you do the, the, the final show. So there's just a lot of playing the same two songs over and over again. The, the time when you get to actually playing it you're sort of like you know you're sort of dialed in yeah and it's what you do yeah exactly you didn't have any no no impulse to sort of change the song in the middle of the song and do like a costello and start playing something else <laughs> yeah we don't want to get banned you know <laughs> yeah, he, got, he got to come back but it was like 35 years later or something. exactly yeah hopefully i mean we've never been asked back i'm 
wondering what I did, you know? Yeah, they totally should have you back. What's up with that? Yeah, make it happen, Mark. I'll, I'll ask Lauren next time I talk to him. Next there time he's go. asking me, next, he's asking me like, who from Chicago should we pull in the cast now? And I'm like, you know what? I don't really care about that, but where the hell Spoon? <laughs> um, exactly. So then Transference was 2010. And uh, I've seen you say that at that point, the band was not having fun. So what is it that changed? Um, I think it's just it, what ended up being a grind, you know? I mean, uh, we were touring a lot, you know? Um, we tried to produce that record ourselves. Um, I think we were all just getting a little bit tired. And it was just becoming more of maybe a job, you know? But the good news is we, we recognize that. You know, so what would what would cause that? Is it just the amount of work or is there something in does it sort of flow from the the writing where, you know, because the songs are a little bit, you know, more downbeat. Uh, they don't have that kind of happy, punchy thing going on that, you know, the previous ones did. Right. No, I, or is, I that, or is that just reflecting where the band was at that point? Yeah. I mean, I don't know where uh, I mean, I feel like for me, I was just. It, it's just, we had been touring so much and we would do uh right record tour, right record tour, right record tour, you know, for, I mean, we had been doing it since 95, you know, and Brit and I never stopped really. So um, it just, it just came down to the point where we needed a break. You know, I think that that's sort of like anything, you know, um, if, if it just becomes a grind and you're just doing the same thing over and over again, you, you need a little distance sometimes to, right. to have perspective and to get appreciation about it and to be like, okay, I remember why I really connected with these people, you know, that kind of thing. So right. it seems like a healthy thing to actually sort of take a break but that's so, that's really really difficult to uh to get your head around though you know i feel like as a musician you you don't really turn things down you know because you never know when the next thing is going to come so you you want to try to you know keep going and try to capitalize on opportunities and like okay we just put out a record we have to tour and then, okay, after that, we have to like, you know, start writing again, start recording, you know, I mean, it just becomes a process where, uh, you know, it, it's inherently like you have to keep going. Were there ever songs that Brit would bring in where you were, you were even like, either like, eh, that one's not quite happening or, you know, you wanted to do something with it that he didn't want to do with it. And so you guys weren't seeing eye to eyes. Maybe you would have on the other songs. Uh, let's see. I mean, there definitely were songs that he brought in that didn't work. Um, but I feel like, you know, we all try really hard to make them work. And we're all like, hmm, you know, this isn't really happening. And Bro will be like, okay, yeah, let's, I got to go off and, and, work on this a little bit more. I don't feel like this is working because of this, you know, that kind of thing. Right. Um, uh, I mean, there may have been songs that we didn't see eye to eye on, but I can't really think of any right now. I do remember, I think there's a song called, uh, uh, I saw the light that song. And that's a two part song, but the second half is like a, um, 
Oh, the first house. Um, I think it's like a sort of a swingy part. And sometimes I feel like Brit and I hear rhythms differently, which is maybe something interesting about the way we play together. Like I'll hear a, a downbeat, like a one at a different point where he will. And hmm. I feel like that, that can be sort of interesting. Um, but I was hearing this, I was hearing like playing it straight because I was listening to his strumming pattern, but he was listening to it as a swing. And I just remember working on that for a while. And then I'm like, okay, I got to give this idea up because I'm going to drive him crazy. So <laughs> just went with the, went with the swing. It just wasn't working. And also it, it was sort of against his, the vocal cadence and everything. But I, right. I just was sort of like, I don't know, dude, I'm hearing it like this, you know? So, yeah, I always thought that was one of the cooler songs on transference. Um, yeah. But, uh, but I could hear, but it sounds like you guys would, you're still trying to work out his vision for the songs as opposed to like, Oh man, he's just bringing us these, you know, turds that we got to polish right now or something. I mean, there are bands that break up because, you know, they were, they're fighting over like the quality of the songs or something like that. And yeah. it doesn't sound like that was happening with you guys. No, that has never happened. He, he doesn't write turds, you know, <laughs> <laughs> no, no turds. That That's the memoir. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, no spoon turds. Um, <laughs> what did you think when he, did divine fits? Did you think, Oh, this is like an ISI project or did it sort of concern you that maybe he was forming a different band? No, it didn't bother me at all. I thought it was great. Like I said, we needed a break and we had to go out and do different things. And I just, you know, went out and started recording in my studio, reaching out to bands and, and started just working a lot, you know, and it's something that I hadn't really been able to do because we were so busy. A lot of times what happens, you know, in a band is you're writing, recording, touring. So your breaks are very short. Um, and also your breaks are short, but you, there may be something that comes up within that break that, that means you have to um, eat up some days off, so to speak. So I couldn't invite, like, I, I, I couldn't like just randomly say, Hey, chick, 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 why don't you guys book flights down from New York and we'll record over this two week time. I couldn't do that because if a spoon record was happening, I would almost have to be like, okay, I can do sort of local stuff because people can come in and then leave, you know? So did that period make you feel more, I don't know if confidence is the right word, but, but, but feel like the studio business was a really viable business because you were able to focus on it. Um, I don't even know if a studio business is viable at all. <laughs> um, I mean, I don't know if I could do this without spoon. I mean, I guess I could, but I mean, you know, I mean, the studio business is really, really hard. Yeah. It's just very hard. There's a lot of stuff that goes into it and musicians, you're working with musicians who inherently don't have much money. You know, I've worked right. with, I've worked with musicians where, you know, I'm working, uh, you know, I was working with uh, an artist. Her name was Dana Falconberry and, uh, um, I'm working with her and she's like working three jobs, you know, but I love her stuff. And I'm like, how can I like, I mean, I'm just going to like help her do this stuff and I want to work with her, but I'm not going to like charge her or anything, you know? Right. Yeah. The music business in general, I mean, the whole recording 
business. It's, it's yeah. all, it's all, that's why you get all those nice colored vinyl, uh, Lucifer on the sofa editions. Cause then people will collect them. And I have the, I have the orange and black one myself. So oh, nice. nice. order directly from the label. Oh, cool. Uh, cool. So when you're, when you're recording these, these acts, do you feel like you're kind of growing and learning stuff still, or is it sort of like, yeah, this is what I do. Yeah. I feel like anytime I do a session, regardless of who it's with, it's a period of growth for me. Uh, looking at it two ways. Like when I like work with, we worked with Dave Fridman on, they want my soul, uh, and hot thoughts. And I mean, that, that felt like sort of a producer engineering masterclass that I was thrust into. That was just amazing. You know, being able to pick his brain and talk to him about stuff, it, you know, and him being such a sweet guy, it was great. Um, but then I also would be in Austin doing a session by myself with, um, say, uh, you know, a Latin, uh, funk band or something like that. And, uh, what I have to do is I have to make it so that they're happy with the track and they have an aesthetic that I have to meet. So I'm constantly learning in those areas, you know, like where should the horn levels be all this other stuff, you know? Um, and then I can apply that to other, other bands, you know, like I could, right. I could use, you know, horns, uh, for a pop artist, but I know how to record them, you know, from this other session and Hey, here's another little trick we did and I can apply it. You know, the more you, get in the studio and do things, the more creative and the more you can bring different ideas to the table. Right. Did I see that you produced something with Steve Berlin of Los Lobos? Yeah. So he produced the um, Grupo Fantasma record, uh, an Austin Grammy winning uh, Latin band. And I engineered it. So I engineered it. He produced it. What was his uh, production uh, approach like? Uh, let's see. I mean, he was great. He's he's like he did a lot of pre-production. So he was great with like with like arrangements and things like that. And then, I mean, he was great in the studio and I was doing the engineering, but he was, you know, I don't know. He was a pleasure to work with, you know, um, the best engineering session I did, though, was I did a Alejandro Escovedo session mm. that, to that Tony Visconti produced. Oh, wow. So, so I engineered, Tony came down here to Austin and I engineered the record and Tony produced it. Um, but just the idea that like I'm sitting outside, but taking a break from a session and I'm like, holy crap, uh, the studio just got an email from Tony Visconti asking about like booking the studio. And then, you know, Oh my God, I have to get on the phone with Tony Visconti and then chatting with Tony. And he's like, Hey, do you have like a house engineer? And I'm like, uh, Tony, I read your autobiography and you like you engineer. He's like, I don't do that anymore. And so I was like, okay, I'll do it. He's like, okay, that'd be great. So, you know, I mean, yeah, that was a, that was an amazing session. He was just like, Hey, the way I want this to work is I want you to just come up with all the sounds, what you think is working. And I'll let you know if it's, if I don't like it. And I'm like, okay, that sounds perfect. Were you guys it, pretty compatible there? Oh yeah. Yeah. I feel like there was only one time where he's like, yeah, I don't think this sound is cutting it. Let's work on that a little bit, you know? So I think over two weeks, I think it was pretty great. I feel like, I feel like um, we had a drummer named Chris Searles on that record too. And he was a big spoon fan. So we did a lot of like 
um, I don't know, we recorded like sort of like angular type things, you know, like stacked splashes and things like that. He was, he was really open to different ideas that I came up with and stuff. So yeah, it was a great session. And just the idea of working with Tony Visconti was, he's such a, um, such a great guy and such a talented person. Did you try to get Bowie stories out of him or would he say, you know, things like, you know, when I was working with Mark Bolin on this, you know, this is what happened. Yeah. But he would just say Mark, you know, <laughs> <laughs> I would be like uh, Mark Bolin, you know, it's like, yeah. Yeah. I'm hanging out with, you know, Andy and uh, uh, Yoko and um, I, oh my God. <laughs> That's great. When, when you came back to do, they want my soul, uh, Britt brought uh, Alex Fischel over from divine fits. Uh, you'd been doing, uh, you know, all this extra work. What was sort of the new, how big a difference did that time away and all these different, you know, changes make when you were doing that one? I mean, I think it made a big, uh, it made a huge difference. I think, I feel like, um, me and Britt had a chat and we're like, we should only be doing this if we're having fun. And I'm like, yes, 100% agree. And so we just tried to make that our focus, you know, and tried to make sure that we were doing this for the right reasons. Um, and then also bringing Alex in, who's like, just like an amazing musician, but also like such a uh, like bright light everywhere he goes. <laughs> He's like a positive, funny guy. He, he really helps like the, the energy of any situation. So, um, it was, it was really great to have him have him in the band. When we see you guys on stage, he, he totally energizes and has that bright energy. So I don't know if that's also happening in the studio, but it's de definitely totally. like this little spark plug yeah, uh, totally. that came in. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So it was like, you know, to inject a little bit of, uh, you know, energy into a situation that's been going for 20 years, you know, I mean, it was very, very nice to see him this excited about uh, that excited about stuff that we had been doing for so long, you know? Yeah. And it's, and that still sounds like a spoon record as they all do, but it's got little, you know, extra things going on in terms of the production. And what did, what was your feeling on kind of the recording of it? Like, did you record it similarly or were there sort of new techniques you were using with this, uh, with, with Dave producing? Uh, let's see. I mean, everything is pretty similar. I think the thing with Dave is he's, sort of like a mad scientist. So he'll come up with sounds that like you've never really heard before. Um, and uh, I mean, he was using techniques like on the drums and things like that, that were um, sort of different, but, but, you know, overall, like, I mean, that's one of the things when you record with a lot of different people, a lot of this stuff happens the same, you know, it, it sort of is done the same way. Um, but if you get the right producer there, they have like a, a vision on how it should sound and they can, uh, any concern that the band has, they know how to fix it. You know, um, production is a lot of problem solving and it's also, you're in the service industry. You're basically trying to get the best record you can for the band. You're, and you're opening with Rent I Pay, which is this totally crunching guitar rocker where Brits found the one, you know, riff that Keith Richards didn't discover yet. And, and it's <laughs> right. just like, it, and it's just like this great sounding, you know, thumping 
track and then you go into inside out which is this sort of dreamy and you guys have done that before i mean on coast of you uh but it was definitely a striking shift into that kind of trancey electronic thing afterward yeah um, totally yeah was he just writing both types of songs or yeah yeah it was just writing both that that's the songs that he's bringing to the table yeah and you were talking um, about inside out he just sort of came in and you, you did you all just start playing that groove and was that alex kind of adding all that keyboard stuff at that point i think on inside out it was like we were heading up to fridman's pretty close to when uh, like we were about to leave i remember and then brick comes in and we start he's like, I want to try this in a, uh, this certain way. And I remember, um, uh, just playing with him. I feel like in the studio, I think it was just him and him and me, uh, and, uh, playing like more of a hip hop kind of beat. Um, and then <laughs> we played it for Dave and Dave's idea for it was like, okay, well, let me just take what you played on the drums, Jim, and convert it all into electronic sounds. So he started by like, just sort of taking kick and snare. And then, you know, cause we had like a handheld cassette recording of what me and Brit did. And so technically <clears throat> I didn't play on that song, but I sort of did, you know, hmm. because he, because he converted your playing, converted my playing. And that was the initial part of it. But then, then we're like, Oh, this doesn't feel right here. Cause you know, I made a mistake or whatever. So let's slide this kick drum and make it more bouncy. And so we were always like building on the beat, but the main thing was, was the demo, what I had played on the demo as far as from the, from the um, practice session. Was the, was the experimentation on that? Did that sort of lead to more of that sort of thing on hot thoughts? I don't know. I feel like they were pretty similar. I mean, we've been, we had been experimenting since, you know, girls can tell kill the moonlight. So there's always right. like, we always get to the point where, you know, this needs a sound or this needs a part or this needs something, or we need a, uh, a vibe or, a um, we need something like a style to make this work, you know? So we have to think of something, uh, that's gonna, that's gonna work. So whether that's a part, then maybe someone goes off and tries something and has all Dave's pedals, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, there was another writing room. So Britt was writing in there, you know, there, there was a lot of movement happening. Um, but I feel like the level of experimentation, you know, I, I guess it's just pretty similar to how we've always done it. Right. Was, was hot thoughts a similar process to the other albums? Would you say, I mean, there's definitely more electronics on it relative to the other ones. Yeah. Yeah. I would say that would be about the same. When, when you guys played here in April, uh, you did not play any songs from that uh, live. And uh, I know that you've played um, some from it, uh, you know, in other shows, but I was wondering if there was sort of a sense of, you know, Lucifer on the sofa, we've sort of like, that's our, our move away from hot thoughts or whether it was just coincidental that those are just not the songs you guys felt like playing on this tour. Uh, I think it's more just coincidental, you know, plus I feel like we've played those songs so many times, you know, so when right. we're working up, when we're working up new songs, we'll be working up 
like sort of back catalog songs further away from hot thoughts. Yeah. I think, I think you guys are playing, do I have to talk you into it at some other shows, but like the hit title track was not among them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, that's true. Talk you into it. Probably like maybe every other show or every third show we would play it. So Lucifer on the sofa is, is obviously the album that came out this year. Uh, you know, your, your quote unquote return to rock, uh, record, um, you know, more guitar oriented, but still obviously sounds like, spoon um excellent songs and uh you have a new bassist uh ben trokin am i mm -hmm. pronouncing that right yeah and then yeah. and gerardo larios on guitar gerardo, um, yep yep the thing that's interesting is that you've had like a, actually a fair amount of turnover in the band i mean you and you and brit are the only ones uh left from that you know string you know from the girls can't tell to uh transference what is it about spoon that makes it still sound like spoon even though you really have had like a lot of different people moving in and out um i don't know if we've had a lot of people moving in and out i feel like when you look at the band has been around for 30 years it's definitely going to happen you know right and if you look at how long like rob pope and eric harvey were in the band they were in the band for a while so, you know, um, anyway, fair point though, Mark, I'm just, uh, <laughs> being, being devil's advocate here. Oh yeah. yeah no, I mean, I'm not, and I'm not saying it even as a criticism, I'm just saying it as, as just like Lucifer on the sofa came out and you have a new guitarist and a new bassist, but there, there's yeah. no, the, the attention on that album isn't like, like, Oh, they have a new guitarist and a new bassist, you know, the way like red hot chili peppers, every time they put out a record, they're like, okay, who's the guitarist this time, you know, yeah, but, yeah, right, right, but right. spoon it's, it's like, it's, it's a spoon record and the focus isn't on that. And I'm wondering right. if it's sort of that you and Brit, you know, that Brit has just this vision and you guys have the sound and, you know, the other parts, I'm not, I don't want to say interchangeable, but, you know, Alex has become, you know, a prominent musician in this mix as well. Uh, but it just, it doesn't feel like it was as, as much of a disruption as you might think the addition of a new bassist and guitarist in a band, five piece band could be. Yeah, I, I agree with that. I see what you're saying. I mean, I feel like there's a few things that, um, are consistent over our career that makes it always sound like spoon. And that's like Brit is writing the songs. So there's going to be some thread of similarity there. Um, even if they are vastly different sounding, I still think like they're still going to sound like spoon. Um, he's singing all the songs. So that's going to be a consistent thing. Uh, I'm playing drums on all the songs. I feel like we both have a very, um, strong view of how we want instruments to sound, you know, uh, like drum sounds, vocal sounds, things like that. Um, and I feel like even Alex and Gerardo and Benny all fit in the same thing where we, we like the similar style of music and, and it's going to be like, yeah, no, we don't think that's working. And everyone has a, has a voice, you know, with there. So, yeah. again, seeing you guys in April, I didn't, I didn't even sort of realize that there were, I mean, I knew that there was at least one different guy than I was used to seeing, but it wasn't really, I, it wasn't registering with me. It was still like, Oh, this is, this is spoon. Yeah, this yeah. is a great, this is a great spoon show and it right. rocks and the songs sound fantastic. And as, as I would expect them to. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so the album, it sounds like the album was sort of like split, or at least there was a big chunk of it pre-pandemic that you were sort of getting ready to get together. And then while everyone was all of a sudden separated, he wrote more songs. Yes, exactly. Right. I would say, uh, I mean, we were calling it like maybe three quarters done of the record. 
because we hadn't mixed anything and there were a few songs we had to like add things to and work on. But then the pandemic hit and things just sort of screeched to a halt. And, um, you know, Brit, it was cool. He, he was, uh, you know, very creative. He, he was, he had the ability to, to have creative times over the pandemic. Um, I, you know, never really had a creative period during the pandemic. I feel like, you know, I, some people just didn't hit it. You know, I had a hard time hitting it. Um, I'm with but, you. Yeah. Like I did a lot of mixing, but it was just like, it was, it was a grind for me and it was very, it was a difficult time, you know? So I couldn't, you know, if, if I was motivated, I would have just created, you know, a record of stuff of my own stuff, you know, but I just couldn't be creative at all, you know? So, um, but then after, you know, we would, we would get together and do all the COVID protocols, stuff like that. There were some times where, um, we were supposed to get together and then we're in stage five here in Austin. And we're just like, you know, this just doesn't make sense to, to get together, you know? Um, and the other thing that took a little bit of pressure off is, you know, we were all on the same page that we didn't want to release a record in the middle of the pandemic. You know, we wanted to wait until things were at least settled down so we could do some touring, right. you know, because I, we love playing live and it's, it's a way to, I mean, it's such an important part of the record release cycle that we didn't want to put out a record into like the void and then never be able to play it, you know? So it, it sort of made us, you know, like, Hey, okay, we have some time, you know? And so Brit wrote a bunch of other songs. And so when we were getting together, he was bringing in new songs and, and uh, I think the record is actually a lot better because of that. So what were the newer ones that he wrote? Uh, let's see. Definitely Lucifer on the sofa, astral jacket wild was started a while ago, but uh, we had never heard it and he had worked on it. Uh, over the pandemic, I think. And he's got a co-writing thing with Jack Antonoff on that. Yeah, he does. Yeah. I think maybe the devil and Mr. Jones. I, I, yeah, it's hard for me. I can't, can't really remember since that whole two years is like a fog, you know, in the pre-pandemic part, you guys were all together in Austin for most of it, right? Correct. Yeah. And, and I, I saw that it was recorded at public hi-fi and also a place called the catacomb. Yeah, that's Brit's place. But were you doing most of the tracking at uh, your studio? Yeah, yeah. But there's times like we we put that in there because, you know, when Brit does a demo, sometimes we're like, man, that keyboard part you did on here was great. You know, we're probably not going to beat it. So let's just use it, you know, just as an example, you know. So he does he does some recording there. Sometimes he'll record his vocals there. So is he there full time now? Is he back to living in Austin? Yeah, yeah. He bought a house here. Uh, right before we started the record, I guess, or no, right in the middle, I guess, 2018, 2019. Does that help with you guys? Cause you know, you could just run over to each other's houses and work on stuff. Oh my God. It's amazing. Yeah. It's great. It's the thing that, um, I don't know. There's something about that, that kind of spontaneity that is awesome. And it reminded me of the Telefono series of sneaks girls can tell days where he would just be like, Hey, I got something can I come over? And I'd be like, yeah, I'm not busy. And then we would work on stuff and it was, it was great, you know? So 
it was really fun to have him have him back and um you know experience that again does he write while you guys are on tour or is that sort of a separate thing like you know you sort of have to take a break and then he'll come over and bring some new songs over yeah it's usually uh when, when he's home getting in his uh you know, the writer's frame of mind. And then you kick off this album with a cover of the song held uh, by smog mm -hmm. and you do a really interesting thing on it. It's like, it's sort of an, it's another one of these spoon experiments that you don't realize is an experiment unless you listen closely or you, you know, hear about it like here, but you have like, take, it sounds like it's take two in one ear and take five is in the other ear and you hear that and you actually hear them being introduced in, in each year. And then you just have these like two takes of the, the song, song by the band going at the same time, right? Exactly. Right. Yeah. So we've done, you know, the double drum thing before, like, I don't know, there are a lot of examples of it, but like you think of like Fleetwood Mac, Mick Fleetwood would do that sometimes where you hear in one ear, you hear a drum set and then the other ear, you hear another drum set. So came up with the idea that let's just do two separate band takes and, you know, pan them hard left and hard right. And we did that. We ended up picking one bass track and putting that up the middle. But um, once we did that, it just sounded so massive and huge. It was like, man, this is pretty sick. So, um, yeah, it was a fun, fun little, fun little uh, experiment. Was the, the thought process always like, oh, this song has to go on the album? Or were you just kind of messing around with like, here's a cool, you know, song by someone else that we like and we're just going to play around with it? And, oh, you know what? Let's keep this one. Yeah, we, I mean, we try a, a ton of stuff and then you know, a ton of different songs. And then the ones that are, end up on the record just sort of bubble up to the top. So we had played this song, I think we played it live like a really long time ago. And Britt just brought it to the table. He's like, hey, let's just try this song again. And um, uh, yeah, just I feel like once we started getting into it, uh, you know, it just got better and better, you know, creating the, you know, sonic arcs of that track, you know, really loud down to quiet, really loud. And it's a really fun, like sonic journey on that song. I feel like it's, it's, uh, really worked, worked well, you know? Um, and as a, as a first track, I feel like, you know, you can't have a super banger first, because then there's nowhere to go from there. So I feel like, you know, having held as track one was a good, a good thing. Was that from the pre pandemic or post pandemic uh, recording sessions? I think it was pre, but we did a lot of overdubs post. And uh, I remember seeing, I think satellite, I think you, I saw you guys play on the, they want my soul tour. Is that yeah. Right? Yeah. That's not, this is the third time we tried to record that one. Well, it worked this time. What it happened did. the other times? It didn't work. <laughs> uh, I feel like this one, I think we may have cracked the code with like the intro section. I feel like it, it just, it's almost like a two part song and we could never get them to sort of seamlessly move between each other. So we tried a ton of different things, but I feel like not having drums at the top and then having them come in, you know, right before those solos. Yeah. No. Yeah. The build is real nice on that one now. Yeah. I, exactly. I'll have to go back to, I'll have to go back to YouTube and, and watch your, you know, fan shot footage of you guys playing it in like, you know, 2007 or something. Yeah. Like that, or yeah. 2014 or whenever that would have been. So, and obviously you're back now from breaking the tour. And then I think you're, you're going to Europe. Um, 
how has the tour felt? Have you, has this felt like the we're back tour? Or is it still the we're back with an asterisk? Uh, let's see. Well, real quick, we're going to Canada international, oh. but, but not. All right, fine. Yeah. See, that's what I get for not memorizing your tour. <laughs> no worries. So hold on, hold on. We're just going to say, so you're, you're, you're going to resume your tour going to Canada. Correct. Yes. Canada in July. Yeah. 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 And um, no, I think it's been, it's been a lot of the we're back kind of feelings, you know, uh, crowds have been great. I feel like people um, are loving seeing live music. It's really, really fun to play these songs live. Um, I mean, obviously there have been hiccups here and there on this, on the touring schedule, but um, you know, for the most part, it's been, it's been awesome. So no asterisk, no asterisk. No, that's great. So are you doing a bunch of production during this break in the tour? Yeah, I am. I am. I'm doing, so there I, a couple things I'm doing. Like I work on people's music, whether I'm producing or mixing and stuff like that. But I started a female non-binary producer mentorship program called Project mm -hmm. Traction. So I basically am working with uh, eight women that I've worked with before, uh, musicians, and I'm co-producing tracks with them to, to, to get, uh, more women into the engineering and, and producing fields. So that's the thing I've been spending a lot of my time on. Well, that sounds like a great project. I mean, sort of a challenging time to be a Texan if you're, uh, in favor of that sort of stuff, but, uh, I don't know how much down the rabbit hole I want to get into, but, um, <laughs> yeah, it's, uh, Austin, Austin has always been the cool place to be, but, but some of the, some of the stuff coming out of the state Capitol on, you know, trans rights and everything and uh, other areas are pretty, pretty frightening. Pretty bad. I agree. Yeah. All right. Last question. Uh, you, you have to flee your home and can only grab one record. What is it? Oh boy. Okay. I just want to pick the right Elvis Costello record. So it's going to be a good um, choice. I can tell. Yeah. Um, I asked Bruce Thomas this question. Speaking of Costello. Oh, you did? Costello. Holy shit. And, and he said, Countdown to Ecstasy by Steely Dan. Really? That was really surprising. Yeah. It, he and Dave Gregory from XTC both said, Countdown to Ecstasy by Steely Dan. Wow. That's I think they all, they had like another alternate too, but they both mentioned that album in particular. And I thought that was kind of amazing. Like, oh, man. Those new wave Brits were really into Steely Dan. <laughs> and I just didn't know. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if I had to pick a Steely Dan record, I would say Asia. So that would be my Steely Dan record. Um, but if I could pick one record while I was running away from my burning house, uh, I would, I would do punch the clock by Elvis Costello. Really? Yes. I feel like um, every day I write the book, the greatest thing is one of my like favorite Elvis Costello songs ever. I feel Sounds like the, great. the drumming on this record is just like next level. I don't know. There's like so many things about it. I really love. So, yeah, I was like, I was thinking maybe get happy. Yeah. Get which, happy uh, is up there too. Yeah. It's so yeah. dense, but it's, uh, yeah. I mean like, like, like the songs are spare, but it's a dense pack of spare. Exactly. Songs. I, I feel I feel like the greatest thing is one of my favorite songs. So it like tips it this way. It does have a great drum sound too. Oh my God. Yeah. Drum sound. The horn part on that track is, is amazing. I love every day I write the book, like the start, the intro, the piano is, has some sort of stereo vibrato going left and right. And then I think when the, when the vocal starts, it goes down into mono or something. I mean, it's like, 
some really cool shit. So Pills I mean, of Soap, a- totally different song sound, yep. but that's yeah. pretty great too. Yeah. Paul, the uh, whole cut, you put the cut into cutie thing on TKO. I'm not sure about that, but um, <laughs> yeah. that's like sort of where he's getting a little too, he's, he's putting a little too much cut into his own cutie on that. Yeah. One. Yeah. Yeah. That's put true. The, the boot and the booty. Um, the I mean, another one would be in rainbows. I feel like that is, you know, or over oh, yeah. the computer. I mean, those two are just like, like what is happening. So amazing. So yeah. I'm with you on those too. Thank you so much for doing this. I really appreciate it. Great talking to you. I hope to talk to you again and see you again soon. I hope you guys swing back to Chicago because we will. We love a good city for you guys. So, oh yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, good luck with your your break. Enjoy and enjoy uh, Paris, uh, Canada, (laughs) and uh, Rome, Canada. And I think we are playing Rome. (laughs) That's all for episode thirty-eight of Carol Pop. Thanks to Jim Eno for taking time during a break in Spoon's touring schedule to talk. You can catch Spoon on tour in July in Buffalo and Albany, New York, followed by dates in Canada and spots around the Midwest and elsewhere. Go to SpoonTheBand.com for the band's schedule, as well as music and merch. You also can get more information about Jim Eno's Austin, Texas studio, Public Hi-Fi, at Public-HiFi.com. And you should follow him on Instagram and Twitter at Jim Eno Acid. That's at J-I-M-E-N-O-A-C-I-D. Yep, Jim Eno Acid. Carol Pop is produced by Chris Swate, another drummer who excels behind the boards. Thank you, Chris. Thanks. You're a rock star. Let's talk more about Chris. I'm Mark Caro. Please follow me on Twitter at Mark Caro at M-A-R-K-C-A-R-O. Visit the Carol Pop website, carolpop.com, for posts about music, movies, and food, and also this Carol Pop podcast. Please share, subscribe, and tune in again next week for another Carol Pop conversation. Thanks. Thanks.